And now, for your feature presentation. Just one, or two, or three, or four, but five, or five. What's up, listeners? I'm your host, ex-video store clerk, screenwriter, and fellow listener, Jason Kleberg, and this is Force 5, a show where I force my guests to come up with a movie-themed top five list topic, and then we reveal our picks on air. The erotic thriller is a direct descendant of 1940s and 50s film noir, the genre with sharp crime stories and mysteries that made post-World War II America look like the shadiest place to be. But the erotic thriller isn't just your typical film noir wannabe, it's the rebellious teenager of movie genres, sneaking in influences from all over the place, and of course, that includes adult entertainment. It's this close relationship to adult content that gives the erotic thriller its popularity, yet critics are kind of like the overprotective parents, almost neglecting it as a legitimate genre. Now, these thrillers didn't just hatch from the noir nest, they've got roots in everything, from mystery novels to horror flicks, European art house cinema, and the wild world of gothic fantasy. And let's not forget the romance novel, the soap opera, even the softcore pioneers of yesteryear. Names like Radley Metzger and Joseph Sarno, who turned middle-brow sexploitation into an art form, putting female desire front and center. Their films paved the way for the softcore renaissance of the 90s, because who wouldn't want a little romance with their cinematic thrills? Director Joe Lynch joined me this week to talk about our top five erotic thrillers, and I could not be happier with how our list turned out. We've got a little bit of everything in here, crafting a perfect little film festival for anybody gearing up to watch Suitable Flesh, Joe's newest film, which is streaming on Shudder right now. I hope you enjoy our dive into the lurid. Without further ado, here's Joe Lynch and top five erotic thrillers. Back in 2015, I picked up a disc for a film called Everly. I got it pretty cheap, and I knew nothing about it, aside from the cover had Selma Hayek and a gun on it, and that was enough for me. I was traveling every week for work at the time, and I remember watching this on my laptop on a plane, and I thought it was awesome. I remember getting to my hotel, and I looked up who the director was, and today I'm joined by that filmmaker, actor, podcaster, Joe Lynch, whose newest film, the H.P. Lovecraft adaptation, Suitable Flesh, which had a theatrical run last October, just hit shutter. Joe, it's an honor to have you on Force 5. How are you this morning? It is an honor to be here, Jason. And more importantly, I have two questions. One, how cheap is cheap? Was it one of those like truck stop uh, like cheapos where it was like <laughs> 99 cents on a rack of, you know, that's a little bit like uh, sticky, if you will. And also... How the hell did you watch this on your uh, your flight and the person next to you didn't go like, what is that? So so I have a lot of questions, but but I but I'm honored that you uh, you checked out uh, Everly, which I'm funny enough, like it when, when it first came out in festivals, um, you know, it did really, really well. And then we had like one bad review and which I totally understand because um, that person just didn't like it. It just wasn't for them. And immediately someone was like, I'm not doing any press. Listen, that, that, that review is terrible. Oh. And it really, it really screwed us up. So when it came out in uh, theaters uh, in 2014, I had had this whole thing set up. We were, we were doing a premiere at the drive-in and we had all these outlets. 
And the second that she said she wasn't going to do press, the Weinsteins, uh, you know, that, that reputable company, the Weinstein company, um, <laughs> they were like, well, if she's not going to do anything, we're not going to do anything. And then we just kind of like got laid out to waste. And since then, it's really like, that's one of the things that like my wife has to keep telling me too. It's like, you know, it's not about the sprint. It's about the marathon. And, you know, just because your movie might not resonate with somebody like right at that, that moment where everyone's like making their top 10 lists or top five, um, you know, like let the movie, all of our favorite movies are movies that might have been, you know, lambasted in the press when it first came out, like the thing that's like the, the gold standard of movies that were, misunderstood upon release and are now considered classics. Not saying that I've made any classics, you know, maybe to some people, who knows. Um, but Everly's one that like over the years when, when it first came out, it was just raked over the coals. And now people are starting to appreciate it a little more. I'm, I'm very proud of that movie. Plus I'm very proud of Suitable Flesh as well. Of course. Now on Shutter. Now on Shutter. To answer your questions, I think I got it for like six bucks at Amoeba. Mm. Oh, if, if you got it at Amoeba, we're good. Yeah. At the very least, I know that it came from a somewhat reputable place that people still go to, you know, well, I mean, I don't know about as much now, but people still go and buy physical media there. I know a bunch of the people who work there, including Phil from uh, uh, from the New Beverly would work there. So who knows? Maybe he was like the guy who was like, hey, you know, just grab that freaky little <laughs> film. So I'll accept that. Good answer. Good answer. And I, I did have to tilt my laptop a little bit to the side when it started getting crazy. But uh, most movies I watch on planes, I have to do that with. So, you know, I, I pride myself in making films that are uh, not safe for airplanes. Well, Suitable Flesh is certainly that. And uh, we're going to get oh, yeah. into that in a moment. But before we get into the kinds of movies that you make, I was hoping you'd give a bit of your origin story. How did you get into filmmaking? I got into filmmaking first, honestly, through the love of cinema through, I mean, before I even called it cinema, it was, I loved movies and, you know, and and I know it's, it's, everybody loves movies, but I was obsessed from the moment that, you know, and I use this example often much to my mother's chagrin, but um, from the moment that I saw Dawn of the Dead when I was three, my mom couldn't find a babysitter. Oh, wow. So I remember seeing that movie. And then that sparked wanting to go back to the movie theater. So then we ended up going to see Star Wars. But I thought that everybody who was on that big screen was behind the screen, almost like a scrim. So I would run to the front and be like, where's C-3PO? Where's the hairy guy? You know, thinking, you know, I was I was just kind of entranced by the entire movie experience. And then, you know, being able to watch those movies at home, I, I just became obsessed and at first I wanted to be either an actor who died in a movie. I thought that was the coolest thing ever. Not realizing years later that when you have all that fake blood on you, it is not comfortable. Uh, but also I want, speaking of blood, I also wanted to do the makeup effects. One of the things that my mom did um, almost to kind of mitigate the trauma that I guess I, she expected me to have when I was watching all these horror movies. Cause she was a huge horror movie fan. Nice. So she would buy me, um, Fangoria magazines, or she would buy me Cine Fantastique, all these, all these mags that would basically peek behind the curtain and show you that it's magic. And I was just completely blown away by the process by which a lot of these guys made their, you know, made these effects. So I wanted to be, you know, Rob Bottin or Rick Baker or Greg Canham. And it wasn't until uh, I saw Chuck Russell's The Blob. And I'll never forget the date, the time, 3 p.m. show on uh, August 7th, I believe it was, 1988. 
And I remember seeing that movie and that was the like the solidifying factor. That was like in the science experiment when you drop in that one element that makes everything like like solidify. That was the moment that I went, oh, I like I want to be part of all of the processes and looking it up. And, and that's what a director does, that he's he or she are, you know, kind of realizing the vision using all of their influences, all their techniques, putting it all together, bringing everybody together. That's what a director does. That's what I want to do. And ever since that date, I had been kind of obsessed with the idea of making features, making television, making anything that can, you know, that needs a camera and actors and editing and music and effects and putting it all together. That's really, that's my issue zero, if you will, is just that time where I was able to, just as a fan, just soak in cinema to the point where it was just my mission to be part of it. And then it was just a matter of, well, how do I make that happen? And that was coming in at a time where, you know, film schools were pretty much the rage if, or really the only place that you can go to get the equipment. The only reason why I went to the school that I did um, was mainly because the equipment was fantastic there. You know, that, that's what I had heard about Syracuse University had this amazing uh, equipment uh, package that you could use to make films. If I wanted to do the total indie route, if I wanted to go full Rodriguez, I would have to travel in from Long Island to New York City to rent all that equipment. If I went to school, I could A, make my parents happy that they have a diploma on their their uh, wall. You know, like, <laughs> look at my boy, went to school. First one to go to college. He did it. And also be able to, to use the facilities there. So that was really the route that I took. And then from there, it was, you know, in the 90s, you you could either put everything on a credit card like Kevin Smith did or or you know sell your blood like Rodriguez did you know or know the right people like some of the other heroes that I had at that time when they were making indie films and those indie films were going to theaters or uh go the music video route yeah so i kind of did both in a way where you know i was enamored by you know the Michelle Gondrys and the Spike Joneses and the Hype Williams and the the my, the Finchers and you know the Anton Fuquas, all these directors who were going from music videos and commercials and using that as a kind of stepping stone into features. So I, I was kind of doing both at that time, and then they all kind of converged together, and here I am. That's awesome. The Blob, by the way, perfect movie. Like I just watched it again last week for another show that I was on, and. Uh... Man, that thing holds up still today. The effects are amazing. I'm so glad that that movie has kind of claimed its space now, not just as a fantastic remake, but a fantastic monster movie. Like now it's kind of always mentioned in the same breath as The Thing and The Fly from like 1990 until about 2008, 2009. You couldn't find the blob anywhere. It was just it, it was just one of those movies that fell in between the cracks. So when I started um, being friendly with a lot of these boutique companies like Shout Factory, um, I, like uh, I started a very aggressive campaign to those guys like Cliff um, and said, you, "You have to do the blob. Where is the blob? Why why aren't people recognizing the blob?" I think the only special edition that had come out around that time was from an Australian company. And it was so hard to get. And for years, every couple months, I would just send them stuff and send them stuff. And then finally, Cliff's like, all right, stop the emails. We got the blob. And we want you to be the moderator on the commentary with Chuck Russell and Mark Irwin and Tony Gardner. And my head exploded. It was like dreams come true. Because I also, like, I think they needed 
um, Chuck's approval and I had become friends with Chuck. Oh, cool. And, you know, I was like, get, you know, get involved in this. I'm telling you, this is going to be huge. Not to say that I was the, you know, the main champion of it. Cause I know that there's other, you know, fans out there that were like clamoring for a new version of the blob, but you're right in a world where special effects seems to be getting less and less respected practical special effects because of all the upgrades with, you know, Blu-ray and 4k and everything where you start to see the seams and you start to like realize like, Oh God, that effect does not look good. Or you can see like the, the seams around the effects movies like the thing, like we just watched on 4k last week and it, it's seamless, but the blob as well, where those effects are, flawless what what tony garner and what lyle Conway were able to do but even just from a story standpoint what chuck and what frank darabont did with that script was i thought revolutionary at the time they were breaking all the rules and i think that's one of the reasons why it holds up so well is because that script is so tight and chuck's uh, direction is so assured those effects are so good and the actors are all there and look the effects or the story wouldn't work if the actors weren't like it, with like using all of their craft to full conviction. Yeah. Like, you, like Shawnee Smith looking up at that blob, she looks terrified and the effects themselves are like so effective that if they, if you started watching it years later and you're looking at it and there's future generations who are watching it going, I don't know, those effects look kind of crappy, you know, as much as I'm excited to see what David does with the, um, with the new blob version, you know, I think it's going to be a, t- a tougher time trying to convince audiences that there is this like blobby creature that is tangibly ta- like touching people. Whereas in the first movie, or sorry, in the second movie, um, you know, the second that that blob touched skin, it burned, it sizzled, it like it was terrifying to think that that thing could eat you and and basically dissolve you. So many elements that I absolutely love about that movie. Um, but we can talk about that for days. So sorry. <laughs> yeah, all good. So the blob Chuck Russell obviously influenced you. Are there any other directors or films that really influenced your work? Cause you've worked in almost every different genre. So I figured there's gotta be some people that turned you on to action movies. Yeah. I mean, it was any director that had a beard, sunglasses and a baseball cap in the early eighties <laughs> Nice. was a director that I was very much uh, interested in. And then, of course, you know, over the years, I would, um, you know, attain influence and, and, and attain, like, admiration for other directors, especially in the 90s when we got to, you know, Tarantino and Rodriguez and, um, uh, let's see, like, Wayne Wang with Smoke and stuff like that when, in, like, the indie era. But for me, I mean, in terms of just my my fetishes, so to speak, in terms of like what I like normally gravitate to in terms of watching movies or even just telling stories. I love roller coaster rides. I love movies that can equally balance, you know, stakes and melodrama and pathos with comedy and with humor, you know, maybe it's sometimes not comedy, but humor, like, um, you know, American Werewolf in London, John Landis, the fact that, you know, here's the guy who did the Blues Brothers and Animal House, and he can make a movie that still to this day is fucking terrifying. You know, th- that's no small feat, you know, and, and so Landis to me, and then, you know, the controversy aside, you know, his his um, contribution to Tales, sorry, uh, from Twilight Zone, the movie, yeah. was terrifying to me, you know, but, but really sad and really dramatic, you know, for multiple reasons, of course, but like, there's a director that could traverse between genres so effortlessly. 
but also, you know, Sam Raimi. Um, he's one of the few first direct, the first directors aside from like, say the Coen brothers that had a very subjective camera um, point of view where they were doing things with a camera that I had never seen before, where the camera was kind of a character. And that really got me like uh, up to that point, I always felt like directors knew where to place the camera in a place where it wasn't going to be intrusive. And there, you know, Raimi, especially, especially when they were working with like Barry Sonnenfeld or Peter Deming or something, when they were doing things that felt very inclusive with the camera, that was huge for me. Um, for action, um, to be honest, I, the one that I keep going back to is William Friedkin. Um, between, oh, yeah. Uh, but also another director that <clears throat> seemed to dip his toe into many genres, not just you know action and thriller and drama, but also do what essentially is like the scariest movie of all time with The Exorcist. And he did it in a way that felt like he was never going to be pigeonholed as a horror director because the next thing he did which at the time was a huge bomb, which was Sorcerer, is a masterpiece. Mm -hmm. But his ability to create kineticism and, Im and immersion in that action, I had never seen anything like that before. Like, say, you know, him and Walter Hill, who, again, oh, yeah. would be able to jump from, you know, 48 hours to, um, you know, Southern Comfort to, uh, what is it, Streets of Fire, you know, that like, and, and also use humor in a way and use, you know, great dialogue and great characters. So all of those guys, John, Joe, Dante, I could go on for hours. Um, but the, the, those were definitely some of the, the few directors that I would gravitate towards. You know, George Romero was one of the directors that I went, all right, here's a horror director, but a horror director who seems to have something to say. Sure. And with you know, Dawn of the Dead, obviously my first movie, but then seeing all the other films that he had done, everything from Creepshow to Day of the Dead, obviously Night of the Living Dead, his later film, Survival of the Dead, I fucking love. Um, you know, the, uh, directors can have messages. And then it made me go back and go, what other directors seem to slip in messages? Like, look at um, Richard Donner. You know, Richard Donner was one of the consummate studio directors or hacks, if you will. I don't, I hate to use that word, but like, I remember hearing that and I'm going, what's hacky about Richard Donner, you know, but you look at some of his work and, you know, everything from Superman and the Omen and Lethal Weapon and Scrooged and Lady Hawk, you know, here's a guy that was jumping all over the place. But if you look very closely, he's slipping in messages about, you know, the, the issues of apartheid at the time and, you know, uh, dealing with animal rights. And he's putting that stuff in there so slyly that sometimes you don't even notice it. But like every year when I watch Scrooge, I'm like, there's the messages right there, you know? Sure. So it, it was, it was really just like a, a good healthy diet of the late seventies or like mid to late seventies, early eighties directors that were really coming into fruition that, um, you know, that, that, uh, that brat pack, you know, and then of course Spielberg, you know, it's like, I, I dive all over the place, but it's like, it, it, for me, it all really started with Spielberg seeing Jaws and Raiders of the Lost Ark and then seeing E.T. and then the one, two punch the year in 1993 with Jurassic Park in June and Schindler's List in December. Like no one can touch that guy because he is the best working filmmaker, you know, today and possibly ever, who knows John Carpenter. See, see what you've done. Now I'm going like, <laughs> I'm going to wake up tonight at 2 a.m. and go like, oh, God, I forgot about Wes Craven. God damn it. You know, so I'm going to I'm going to let's just say there's a lot of them there. I'm, I'm a fan of all of those people. And yeah, Spielberg. I mean, E.T. was probably the movie that like you seeing Dawn of the Dead at three years old. E.T. was probably mine. 
at uh, maybe like five years old. Probably way too young to see that movie, but that's one of the things that really turned me on to movies when I was little. Do you feel like, do you feel like you've, like there are certain movies that you got introduced to too early that now you can go back and go, oh my God, like I never imagined, you know, this, this movie would affect me the way it did as maybe a young adult or even an adult now when you watch as a kid, because I have two kids and I was that, you know, I was that dad who's like, all right, boys, when are we watching Road Warrior? And, you know, (laughs) my ex was like, I don't know if that's the right choice for, you know, for these two. I'm like, but it's got fast cars and look, they have all these hot wheels. We can play little Mad Max. We can just, you know, make a little like open road and we can have them all crash together. There's certain movies that like you should wait for. And more times than not, um, cause Adam Green, my partner on the movie crypt, you know, he's got a shrine to ET. ET's his favorite movie of all time. Awesome. And more times than not, we've had people come in and gaze upon, the shrine of ET and they go, I was too young to watch that movie at the time, you know, and, and just like you. And, and it makes me think, go back. Cause I saw that movie in the theater and I was like blown away, but you there, there's a version of that movie that you can absorb as a kid. Cause you relate to Elliot. And then when you get to be an adult, especially now, like the fact that I can relate more to D Wallace is like mind blowing. But yeah. like I, I can appreciate ET on a completely different level. Where is you know like with being a kid, I can see what it was like to be Elliot, you know, and be an outcast or or have this well have an, an alien in the background. But that's a that's a whole other story for another day. Yeah, I think for me that movie was probably RoboCop because when I was oh. younger. I think RoboCop 3 had already come out. So they were marketing RoboCop towards kids. They had the cartoon, they yeah. had the toys. The and I video going game. to my uncle's house. Yeah, the video game on Nintendo. And I went to my uncle's house and he had the VHS. He went to bed one night and he's like, pick whatever you want to watch. And so, of course, me and my brother pick RoboCop. And that first scene, I was maybe nine, maybe, maybe eight or nine. But I had never mm-hmm. seen anything that violent before when Murphy just gets torn to shreds in the beginning. And that was probably the version... Correct me if I'm wrong, but that was probably the theatrical version too. So you probably didn't even see because the yeah, I didn't see X, the X-rated the, version. The X-rated version didn't come out until years later when you know DVDs became a little more um, you know popular. Uh, the same thing. I like I RoboCop. That's another director, Verhoeven. Like that was somebody that like I appreciated more when he started getting into his American films. But RoboCop was the first movie I saw that my. And I'm sorry if I'm going to diatribe here. Um, this is why it's good that we don't have a hard out. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I, my mom, my mom's uh, cousin, Donna, she had a connection with uh, someone on the black market, which made her seem like real fucking cool. Like, she, my God, <laughs> Aunt Donna knows someone on the black market. Sweet. But she would be able to get bootleg VHSs of movies that I couldn't get, you know, at the time, or I, you know, maybe mom couldn't get for me, or movies that came, you know, were just coming out. So she got me Friday the Thirteenth Part Five, which today is maybe in my top three of Friday the Thirteenth. But you know, again, another story. But she got me RoboCop, and this was right when my grandfather died, and like we had a whole bunch of kids. I had a bunch of cousins, and we were all at my grandmother's house, and while the parents were all lamenting about my grandfather and making lots of food for the wake and everything. We needed something to do. We didn't have, like I couldn't unhook my Nintendo entertainment system and bring it over. So she got RoboCop and she gave it to us. And at the time I was 11 Mm -hmm. uh, and my cousins were younger than me. And I remember popping that in 
And I had heard about the movie because it was all over the news because it got an X rating. So even as a young gorehound, when I was feverishly reading Fangoria and seeing all the effects, I'm like, I got to see this film. And still, it, that movie punched me in the gut and punched them in the gut too. And I became a Verhoeven fan for life. And then, you know, obviously Total Recall and the movies that came out after. Um, sidebar, have you seen RoboDoc yet? No, I have it. I oh. bought the steel book from Walmart and uh, I have it, but I haven't dug in yet. I really need to. Dude, I can't wait to. You will, if you've ever had the ultimate binge mm-hmm. where you just start one episode of something and you go, I can't stop. I, I, I need to, you know, sate this, this, this need now. I need to mainline this shit right into my arms as a huge, as a huge Robocop and Verhoeven fan, like as, as big as it comes. I was a little skeptical on this. Like, how are you going to stretch four to five hours about the making of Robocop? It's maybe my third favorite movie of the year. Really? Because I could not stop. I like, if you, if you even have a passing love or even an appreciation for Robocop, the stories in this documentary are some of the best I've ever heard for any movie, how they got the people they got. They got Verhoeven. They got Peter Weller and his stories and they got it like, we had him on the show, the filmmakers, and they got him literally like at the last minute. But his through line, all his stories make that entire documentary. I will say this. You will never look at an Oreo the same way again. <laughs> all right. I'll check it out. Um, side note. Have you played the video game or seen the video game Rogue City? Oh, the new one? I played yeah. the demo and I'm like, oh, they even got the, one of my favorite little in-jokes on RoboCop is the part where RoboCop um, drives up the ramp and it always makes a spark because he's so heavy. The fact that they even got that right. I'm like, okay, this is like the best RoboCop game ever. It is. I played through it in like three days and uh, it's amazing. Oh, it just really? Makes you feel like RoboCop. All right. Well now it's going from demo to paid mode. <laughs> All right. Let's, let's transition into a uh, suitable flesh. Yes. So as I understand it, the, the script for suitable flesh had been floating around for a really long time. Is that correct? Yeah, they, um, Dennis Paoli and Stuart Gordon. Again, another person I'm kicking myself that I didn't talk about earlier because sure. Stuart, when I saw Reanimator, was huge because he was another director that made you go, am I supposed to laugh or am I supposed to scream or maybe feel a little titillated? A little bit of everything. And that was Stuart's, you know, that, that was his back. And <clears throat> I'd known Stuart for years. And funny enough, on the movie Crypt, uh, we do this thing called Classic Crypt, where we go back and listen to old episodes. And we had Brian Usner, the producer of Reanimator and From Beyond and Directed Society, longtime Stuart Gordon collaborator. We had him on the show back in 19, uh, sorry, 19, God, we're not that old. Two thousand first podcaster. <laughs> yeah, the per- po- first podcast ever. And it was Brian Usner, Trailblazer. Um, we had him on and I had asked, I totally forgot about this. What Lovecraft adaptation do you still want to do? And he mentioned the thing on the doorstep. Five, four years later, not actually more like three when I first got it, but three years later, Stuart had passed away and Barbara had sent me the script and she had said, look, you know, Dennis and Stuart have been trying to get this thing off the ground for years, but they were told in one form or another, like too sexy, too provocative. And um, so when, you know, and I had known about them doing that together, but, um, but I never thought it would be like put on my shoulders at all. So when I read that script, I was like, this could be really cool. It's just missing one thing. 
and at the time, you know, the original script had it where it was two male protagonists, not two female protagonists as the film is now. And I had said, like, I think, it, you know, in this current, because as a filmmaker, you always have to be conscious of the present day and what the culture is um, surrounding this story by. And I thought, you know, if this was 1995 and Michael Douglas was the star, you could probably get away with this story the way it is, especially with, you know, the older man, younger woman dynamic and the, you know, the, the body swapping as it was. It just felt like it was old news. And not only that, but it just felt like it was a little both safe, but also at the same time, it felt a little old fashioned, especially with the sensibilities post Me Too. Sure. So that's when my writing partner and I went, were like, what if we flipped it? You know, and not just to flip it, just to say like we were being progressive or, you know, it's like, oh, that's the new trend. It was truly an experiment to see if the same thematics of what Lovecraft was going for could resonate now and be a little bit more dangerous because we're dealing with older women. That is usually not something that, you know, horror fans flock to these days. So all of that stuff kind of congealed when we sent it back to Barbara and said, like, look, I'd love to do this, but you know, and, and really honor Stuart's name by doing this. But we got to try to do this. And shockingly, they said yes. That's awesome. Yeah, I heard that it was floating around for a really long time. And I was yeah. kind of curious how that came into your hands. For somebody who hasn't seen Suitable Flesh, or I'm sure everybody's heard of it who's listening to the show, but if they haven't seen it, how would you sell it to them? Let's see. Uh, Suitable Flesh is a it based on the HP uh, Lovecraft story, The Thing on the Doorstep, is a sexy horrific, comedic, cosmic body swap noirotica uh, that <laughs> uh, continues the Miskatonic verse if you are into Reanimator and From Beyond, but takes body swap movies that I know are a chestnut to a whole different level. Yeah. I mean, I don't think I've ever seen a sex demon that, that transfers from one body to another. I, you know, the, well, when you think about like succubus or succubi, you know, their their modus operandi is somewhat based in the sexual world. Um, sure. But yeah, never, never something like this where usually, you know, body swapping entities like this in one form or another have slightly higher stakes when it comes to their, you know, their their goals, so to speak. You know, like I want to take on the world. I want to be the president. I want to, you know, um, destroy everything, blah, blah, blah. Not, I want to feel what it's like to fuck someone in another person's body, you know, or do it <laughs> yeah. in a more almost like selfish kind of sensibility where they are, you know, they're doing it for their own nefarious purposes. I, that's something that I got really excited over that, like, we could personalize the stakes, that it's not just, you know, zero or 11 when it comes to the stakes it's more like three or four this is someone who and they've been doing it for you know like when we were discussing how long this entity's been around we're like at least a century which is kind of shocking to think that like when you watch the movie and you see what happens you go like when why hasn't this happened earlier you know but um but yeah that was that was the goal with this was to try to make something that you'd never seen those kind of stakes before and that was something that all the actors were really, really excited about exploring with us. Yeah, I'll tell you what, Heather Graham puts on a hell of a performance. And it it had to have been fun for the actors in that movie because they are playing two different characters. They're playing themselves and then they're playing themselves when this demon has taken over. You know, I've, I've been a fan of hers for a long time, probably since Boogie Nights. I loved mm -hmm. her in Scrubs when she played uh, the psychiatrist Molly Clock. She was great. What's funny is that while we were shooting... 
um, my editor and I, because uh, we were in this Airbnb working on the, like, so I would shoot and then we'd be editing it, you know, at night while I was shooting during the day. And we would have just like, not dumb TV, but we would have like kind of superfluous. Sure. Background stuff. Easy, easy, easily digestible background TV on. And we started watching Scrubs because they had never seen it before. And uh, it just, I totally forgot that Heather was in it. And on like day 12, I like, I stumble into the, the living room and I'm like, the fuck is Heather doing on TV? Oh my God, I forgot she was on Scrubs. <laughs> she, I, I think like what's great about having her cast from a very like um, selfish and objectifiable situation is that everybody know, knows who Heather Graham is. Like we've grown up with her. You know, like I grew up, you know, falling in love with her as Mercedes in License to Drive, the two Corys driving oh, yeah. back in the 80s. And then in, um, what was it? Uh, Drugstore Cowboy. But then you had Swingers and you had uh, Boogie Nights and you had Bowfinger and, um, you know, all. Of, and then she started doing it like a lot of indie films. Everybody knew and knows who Heather is. And what was shocking to me was that she had, and she was the first person to say, she was like, I can't believe I haven't done more horror. Now, you know, she did from from Hell, the Hughes Brothers movies, and she did a couple things here and there, but nothing on this level where a lot of it hinged on her. And she like and to, to answer your question, like between like her and Judah, especially those two, the idea of being able to play multiple parts, like that's like actor mana. They, you know, as an actor, as a bad actor myself, not to, you know, kind of compare myself to those two thespians, you know, but whenever you get the chance to try things that seem outside of your comfort level, especially when it's like, okay, I have to prep this one character, but then I have to prep this other character that's in my original character. We we worked on it so much and in the best way possible to the point where I had them like record themselves saying, you know, each other's lines and use the same mannerisms. Uh, and, you know, Judah especially loved that because he was able to really tap into, you know, the inner gram, so to speak. But Heather as well, you know, like she was really enjoying like, you know, certain times like mimicking this entity that we kind of came up with out of the blue or what does Barbara's character do mannerism wise or speech wise. So, yeah, it was it was the kind of thing that I'm sure was enticing for a lot of the actors to, you know, gravitate towards because it wasn't just say the lines, move on. It was, they really had to dig deep into, you know, the characters and even themselves to see where they could kind of take these characters to the next level. There's a scene where uh, her husband comes home and she's day drinking. And it might be one of my favorite scenes of all last year. <laughs> that scene's amazing. That that was my, arguably my favorite scene to shoot because, you know, I had grown up with Heather and I'd grown up with Jonathan's work as well. And both of them, you know, both, both of them took the roles very seriously. And sometimes when you say that people go like, oh, were they like real method and off in the corner brooding? No, not at all. Like the moment I called action to the moment I called cut, they were 150% in it. And then the moment that it cut, they were boisterous and jubilant again and just kind of hanging out. (laughs) But watching these two play off of each other, that the fireworks and the best special effects were just their dynamic. We had, they gave us so many different options in the edit room to really play with this. So when we were in post, we really had to oscillate a lot of those little things, even down to like the feet wiggling thing. That was something that Heather came up with. 
<clears throat> and I actually, that was the first thing that I cut into that scene when you're looking at your big Premiere Pro file or whatever. That's the first thing I dropped in. I said, everything ha- everything before this moment and after this moment has to be reflective of this moment. And watching those two play off of each other and then get into a pretty hot and heavy sex scene where some of that stuff, the pulling of the knife and the choking stuff, that was like, let's just say that was very organic between them. And I'm just glad that we were there to capture it. Yeah, I, I noticed that toe wiggling scene. It's like, oh, this demon is having fun in her body. I love the fact that like you can have like someone who is so dastardly and so sinister and they're really enjoying themselves. You know, like there, yeah. there is a, a, a joie de vivre, if you will, to what they're doing where they're like, this guy's got really good brandy. And, you know, the house is pretty palatial and I'm in this brand new car of a, of a body, you know, and not only that, but now I get to feel what it's like to have sex in someone else's body and feel like what a female orgasm is like. Like, this is great. I love this shit. <laughs> and when you mention that to the actors, like, like never thought in a million years I'd ever say to Heather Graham, I want you to expound what the ultimate orgasm that you've never had before would be like. And everything that's on camera is exactly how she interpreted that. And that's that that's fucking gold right there. It's amazing. Well, as I look at my list here of uh, erotic thrillers, it almost feels yes. like I structured my list around films that would perfectly tee somebody up for suitable flesh. If they did Ooh, like a okay. movie marathon, I think I've got a lot of elements here. I'm sure you do too. Joe Lynch, you ready to get into top five erotic thrillers? Let's go. You know what's going to happen? Mm. You know what's happening? I'm going to start off here with number five. Um, one of the one of the things that I really loved about erotic thrillers, especially growing up, is that there were no shortage of them on video store shelves or mm-hmm. on Cinemax. If you were lucky to to have Cinemax as a kid or knew a friend who did, I never had it myself, but I definitely slept over. At oh, kids the old had it. like my friend that has Cinemax. <laughs> yep. Oh, okay, I've heard that one before. <laughs> so um, I'm I'm going to start off with one that I think falls into that vein. And I think there is an element of suitable flesh that that kind of gives off this early 90s vibe from Heather Graham's character's office to their home decor. That's that's what it kind of gave me the feeling as. And so I'm going to go with a movie from 1993. I think it may have been released in 94, but it's called Scorned. Ooh. Have you heard of this one? No. Fuck, man. You got me already. Holy shit. I'm trying to remember that one. All right, it's got a great cover. I think when you when you look it up and you see the cover, you're going to be sold. But um, so I work from home, and and typically when I'm doing busy work or I'm designing something, I'm typically watching something in the background, and inevitably my wife will walk in at the most awkward moment, be like, "What are you watching?" So I'm watching this movie, Scorned, and of course my wife walks in when Shannon Tweed. Oh, it's a Shannon Tweed movie. God damn yep. it, uh, Andrew Stevens. She's sitting there. She's masturbating in the guest house, positioned purposely so that the 17 year old son of the family she's staying with sees her doing it and my wife is like you're watching porn while you're working and it's like no 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 no. it's it's an erotic thriller come sit down and why does that porn look better than than expected that's weird (laughs) yeah um so she sits down and she watches the rest of this thing with me um and that's that's saying something it was compelling enough for my wife to sit down on the bed and watch the rest of it 
Um, so the story behind this one is you have this this woman played by Shannon Tweed, and her husband is in line for like a partnership at a firm, and he doesn't get it. And in turn, he kills himself. And so she's devastated and decides to take over that family from the inside as revenge. It is definitely the hand that rocks the cradle, but with more sex, worse acting, and incredibly bizarre twists and turns. But this is one that is really endearing to me. I only watched it maybe two years ago, and I, I loved it. You've got, um, she comes in, she like starts poisoning the wife. She starts coming on to the 17-year-old and the father. She kind of makes them both battle, falling in love with her. This is one of those uh, carnal crimes, animal instincts films you would find on the bottom of the video store shelf. We all have those movies, and... You know, I'm shocked. I feel like ashamed that this one completely bypassed me. Th all that said, I remember seeing that box because I used to work at multiple video stores. I was that video store geek, um, just like you know a, a lot of our uh, a lot of our heroes, so to speak. You know, once you hear that someone like that, like Tarantino, started out in a video store and then actually made movies, I was like, well, that's a viable and you know employment route that I need to take. <laughs> yeah. And I remember working at. Um, a couple of them, but I worked at Blockbuster for two years because I was the only video store that was in my town. Sure. And they had a slew of erotic thrillers, including Scorned, and I never saw it, and now I have to see it immediately. And plus, I, I mean, we all grew up where Shannon Tweed was the, you know, was the it girl, like in the yeah. you know early to mid-90s. And, um, you know, whether it was Skinamax or it was VHS, oh man, I'm I'm very embarrassed, Jason. You got me on that one because I thought like we had watched. There's nothing like being able to say, oh, I have to do some homework. And next thing you know, you're watching, you know, like Sea of Love or Body Chemistry. I don't know if you ever saw the Christine uh, Peterson movie Body Chemistry with uh, Mark Singer. Um, I don't think that's so. another one. Oh, dude, like that almost made my top five because I feel like with so many comparisons that we've gotten to Skinamax movies in terms of the aesthetic for suitable flesh. Cause most yeah. of the movies that I, I picked are movies that had way bigger budgets, way more time to be able to shoot what they were able to shoot. Whereas we had a, like probably a 10th of the money that a lot of these had. And so we were a little bit, you know, not shortchanged, but um, you know, squeezed if you will, sure. in yeah, terms yeah. of trying to, to realize the vision. But a lot of those films, you know, from, a lot of them were made by Corman, some uh, by, you know, like uh, Charlie Band, Andy Sedaris, um, Andrew Stevens. You know, they were working off of lower budgets, minuscule time, and body chemistry with uh, the Beastmaster himself, Mark Singer, and uh, Lisa Prescia. I highly recommend that. That one came out in 1990. I'm putting that on my list right now. Yeah, that that that's an alternate. I'm not putting that on my top five, but that would be in that same realm of scorned. But excellent choice, sir. Okay, uh, I would be remiss if I didn't mention this movie. It's not number one because we're talking about erotic thrillers, but I felt like this was one that has ties to Suitable Flesh in the, the kind of miskatonic verse that we uh, connected ourselves to. So if you're a fan of Reanimator uh, and, and this next movie, because those two films were kind of in the same miskatonic university, um, we did the same thing in Suitable Flesh where we actually brought that, that exact hospital from reanimator we put that into this film as well but um the one that i feel is a little bit more on the erotic thriller end would be the follow-up that stewart did to reanimator which was from beyond now some could technically say that dolls was but from beyond starring 
Barbara Crampton, Ken Faree, and Jeffrey Combs. Um, I feel like what is definitely more in the same realm of gothic horror, cosmic horror, body horror, but also the way that, that Stewart shot a lot of these scenes, especially the signature scene where Barbara Crampton essentially uh, sexually assaults Jeffrey Combs uh, when she's, um, I guess, influenced or absorbed by Dr. Pretorius, the, you know, the evil sexual being that is in From Beyond. That feels very much like something that was shot for Skinamax. Every journey begins in the mind. <laughs> A flight of imagination. <laughs> A vision of what might lie across the universe. Or within the deepest regions of the subconscious. Dr. Edward Pretorius is about to embark on such a journey. It's out of control. You've got to turn it off. Something's coming. Humans are such easy prey. Makers of Reanimator from Beyond. It just has that that slightly flatter palette. Um, it seems a little more matter of fact because you know when we were growing up watching a lot of the movies and even some of the films on this list, you had directors who were shooting things like um, like neo noir, you know, or even just like film noir back in the day. They're losing lots of. Uh, wind machines and you know to blow the curtains in the background and they're using lots of you know neon lights and lots of shadows and cross dissolves whereas you know from beyond was a little more matter of fact but i liked that i would you know i'm i'm the type of person that when i watch my porn i like the wide shots i'm not i'm not big into the insert shots no no pun i like to see the whole i like to see the master shot if you will and the way that stewart shot a lot of the erotic scenes they are much um much wider you know, even like if you'd want to go back to Reanimator and look at, you know, the infamous head giving head scene, you know, the, the shot that um, really affects people is the wide profile shot when, you know, Dr. Hill's head's going in for the kill, so to speak. Yep. So, you know, th- but I, so I had to put at least one Stuart Gordon erotic film in there. And for me, it would be H.P. Uh, Lovecraft's From Beyond. That's a great choice. Have you seen the 4K disc that Vinegar Syndrome put out last year? So, yes, I did. Actually, I was part of the campaign to uh, put it out. Um, oh, when fantastic. We did, a, we did a, a screening. Barbara and I did a screening at Panic Fest uh, back uh, last year. And I thought, and, and Vinegar Syndrome, who I've worked with before, uh, they were like, you know, would you and Barbara want to present this? I'm like, hell yeah. Like, I, if anything, I just want to, I'd never seen From Beyond on the big screen. So to be able to see that on the big screen with Barbara sitting next to me, let's just say that that was uh, half amazing and half awkward because the whole time she's going, <laughs> I look, I look so good. I'm like, I know, Barbara, stop it. But we were able to show that for the first time. It was the first time that anyone had ever seen it. And it looks unbel- It looks like it was shot today. Yeah. Like I was sitting there going like, oh my God, this, this movie was shot in 1985 and it looks better than our movie. This is terrible. But what was great was <laughs> watching that with a crowd was fantastic especially because they knew that barbara was in there and then right after we um we previewed the first five minutes of suitable flesh we didn't tell anybody we just kind of went boom and the whole crowd went nuts so it was like the perfect primer for everybody to get back into the miskatonic verse 
And that, that transfer, I think they, um, they just showed it here in LA recently. I mean, everyone's raving about it too. So I'm so glad that there's a new, a new appreciation for From Beyond because everybody, you know, obviously talks about Reanimator and felt like for a couple of years, no one was talking about From Beyond. Now everybody's talking about From Beyond. Yeah, it's a it's a wild movie for sure. And uh, that kind of yeah. leads perfectly into my number four, which is definitely the wildest film on my list. Ooh, okay. And we're going to Italy for this one. We're going to an Italian erotic thriller here. One of uh, Lucio Fulci's last, if not his last movie. Um, this is The Devil's Honey from 1986. Ooh, wow. Everything I love is in you. I need you. I need all of you. No, because you don't want me. You want a piece of me. One of the wildest opening scenes you will ever see. Oh, my where God. Where this musician takes a, his girlfriend. Like, he's got to be this best saxophone guy ever. And he, you know, he, he's got this big camp with him. And he takes a break from recording. Everybody leaves the studio. He brings his girlfriend into the studio gets her naked, and then plays the sax directly into her nether regions to make her orgasm. That's the beginning shot of this movie. We uh, we referenced this movie heavily because I feel like sexy sax was something that kind of fell by the wayside. Yeah. Uh, it became, it was a major component of sexy scenes in movies for years, you know, from the 50s. And then in the 80s, everybody was blowing that sexy sax. And then it kind of <laughs> fell by the wayside, you know, in, in terms of, you know, elements and ingredients that sexify a scene. And uh, so I, I had mentioned Devil's Honey to my composer, Steve Moore. Nice. We, like we, I referenced like, you know, we got to have sexy sax. We got to have it like, you know, like Lost Boys or like Devil's Honey. He's like, well, Devil's Honey? I've never seen Devil's Honey before. I'm like, oh, dude. Strap in. Steve is, um, you know, known for his um, kind of Giallo-esque kind of scores with his band Zombie, Z-O-M-B-I. Um, this was one of those movies that was like, uh, you know, off his radar. It's definitely on his radar now. And, um, you know, if Fulci is someone that I didn't realize was very much like Jess Franco, too. You know, he had his hand in so many different genres. Um, I just didn't, other than maybe like New York Ripper, I never knew that he could be so sexy. Then you see Devil's Honey and you go, oh, oh, Fulci, Fulci can be sexy. Very, 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 very sexy. He's honestly, he's a lot like Verhoeven, where he just takes whatever genre he's going into and then amplifies it up to 11. And he yeah. does that in this film. It's it's a story about grief. This uh, The sax player dies shortly after that. And the op, the he, he basically dies on the operating table when the surgeon's wife walks in and is like, I'm divorcing you. So his mind's elsewhere and he messes up the surgery and the guy dies. And so the girlfriend swears revenge. And that's what it's about. It's it's about her trying to get revenge on this doctor. The third act in this movie is absolutely bonkers. She takes the guy at gunpoint, forces him to be a human dog for a bit. It's by far one of the sleaziest films I've ever seen. But if you're into Euro trash, this is the film for you right here. I, I used to think that New York Ripper was like, for me, the last great Fulci movie. Um, when I revisited Devil's Honey, I was like, oh, no, no. He still had some he still had some more gas in the tank, so to speak. Um, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, hi, yeah that's, a, that's a very, very good choice. And now I can say that I'm going to use your choice as a segue to my next choice because it nice. also concerns sexy sax in a way but also was a major influence on Suitable Flesh. And also, I think, just one of the sexiest movies I had ever seen. 
Um, you know, David Lynch is known for his very particular brand of eroticism. I never forget seeing Blue Velvet and going like, man, I got so many feels right now when I was a little kid. And then again, a movie that I saw in the 80s and then saw again in the 90s and sure. two different movies completely. But that said, I think um, David's uh, 90s contribution, um, The Last Seduction from 1986, sorry, 1996, is a sexier movie. It's a darker movie. It's a more dangerous movie. We've met before, haven't we? I don't think so. At your house, don't you remember? No, I don't. As a matter of fact, I'm there right now. That's crazy, man. Call me. I like that. I think there's no such thing as a bad coincidence. It has Bill Pullman as a saxophonist, like oh, yeah. Patricia Arquette in the most beautiful slow-mo naked shots of all time. Uh, yes, you have Robert Blake, you know, in one of the creepiest roles ever committed to film. But there is, you know, and again, this movie deals with a lot of the things that we were dealing with too, in terms of certain fetishes and taboos. There is a kind of sort, a, a sort of body swapping element to it as well. But the surrealist um, vision that that Lynch has in this film in particular, uh, I'd never seen darks and blacks and browns very like anywhere like this like the whole like um the scene where heather graham goes back to her office uh two times one for the dream sequence and then for um for the big finale like one of the big finales when she goes yeah. back to her office <coughs> my my dp david matthews no not that david matthews the other one uh we watch that a lot to find ways to create darkness where um in, in certain spaces, but also make it sensual. Don't make it, you know, like so foreboding that a character is in the darkness. Um, there's ways that Lynch uses, um, you know, his, his DP on that was Peter Deming, who also weirdly enough shot Heather Graham in uh, uh, Austin Powers too. Uh, oh, nice. But his way of being able to create a, a nightmare scape, if you will, but still make it so sexy. Like I, I'll never forget the the. There's a one particular scene in uh, Lost Highway between Bill Pullman and Patricia Arquette uh, uses slow motion in ways I had never seen before. Um, and there is an absolute trust that those actors have with that director. Um, and I looked it up. You know, I was doing a lot of research on the movie too. How he was dealing with like closed sets and how he mm -hmm. was dealing with because I had never done eroticism in a movie you know, before like this, I had had sex scenes in movies, but not to this level where it was really propelling both the plot and the character. So, you know, for me, like Lost Highway was so important for the process of suitable flesh, but even like watching it casually, because, you know, my wife had never seen it before. And, uh, and I was very happy to show her that because she's a huge David Lynch fan too. And it, again, up until the point where it was on um, Criterion, the new Blu-ray that came out, um, it, uh, it it felt like it kind of fell by the wayside. So now that it's out, now that it's out on beautiful Blu-ray on Criterion, I highly recommend that. And you get to see Bill Pullman in one of the weirdest jazz solos I had ever seen in a movie before. <laughs> and yeah. it has one of the scariest scenes I had ever seen with Robert Blake that didn't uh, that didn't have anything to do with a true crime. 
Wow, we've got two sax players on our list. I mean, I'm kind of not surprised because sexy sax is you know the way to go, man. That's that's the that's the new the new cool. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, my number three is one that I really hope that Criterion puts out at some point. And we're getting away from the sax players here. I think on my list, this is probably the best movie on my list. It's it's certainly Ooh, okay. Yeah, it's certainly like the best made movie. It's not my favorite, but it is my my like if I was to say you got to watch one of these, this would be it. Mm-hmm. It's Bound from 1996. Something's going to come along like it was made for you. Something that's going to fit you like a glove. And that part of you that you got hidden away right now, that part of you that we know ain't straight. That's never going to be straight. It's going to whisper in your ear. Just three little words. I want out. Hi. My name is Violet. We heard you working in here, and I was just wondering if you'd like a cup of coffee. An open invitation like Violet comes once in a lifetime. (laughs) What the fuck is... Corky, this is Caesar, Caesar Corky. I thought... Fucking dark in here. All right, I'm glad I didn't put that on my list. That was that's in my top ten. Yeah, like bound it, bound it is solidly in like six or seven. I'd say um, I love that movie. All right, so I'm, I'm going to shut up now and let you talk. <laughs> it's so good. Before the Wachowski siblings changed action cinema forever, they directed this really small film for Summit Entertainment called Bound. Stars Gina Gershon as Corky, this tough female ex-convict. She's always dirty, working on this apartment complex, and she meets the couple next door. Um, it's Joey Pantoliano and he's Joey Pants, Joey Pants. He's this paranoid mobster. And then you have Violet who's played by Jennifer Tilly. She's so good in this role and she's his girlfriend and she's immediately attracted. There's just a a spark between them and together they plan to throw Caesar to the wolves and steal 2 million bucks from him. Um, there's just so much to love about this movie for a first movie. I, they had written assassins before this, yep. but this is their, yeah, they've done like debut. comic books. They were one of those, yeah. those screenwriters that was like hot at that moment because they had started in, you know, comics and everything and had a couple spec scripts and assassins came out and, you know, originally they had the matrix ready to go. And Joel Silver said, yeah, but you've never directed anything. So this was in a way their proof of concept to show that they could actually direct and, Truth be told, I mean, next to The Matrix, sometimes I, I go, I like Bound over The Matrix sometimes just because of the sheer craft. And you, I'm glad you mentioned the $2 million because they had less money than the bounty in that movie to make the movie. They had like $1.2 million. And that movie looks slicker and has cooler shots. There's the oh, yeah. overhead shot of the big boss going through and the moment when Chris Maloney is standing behind, like in front of the, um, the, the glass painting and the bullet goes past. There are things that I had never seen in a movie before. And it was like when I grew up and I was watching the Coen brothers and, you know, blood simple is a movie that I watch before every movie I make just to kind of remind me like this could be made for nothing. And these guys are very fully realized as visionaries. But you look at all of their movies, and then up to that point, they started making like slightly more serious films. 
as opposed to like Miller's Crossing or Blood Simple or Raising Arizona or, you know, Hudsucker or whatever. They were starting to get a, they were pulling back a little bit. I was like, the Wachowskis took that and ran with it. And they started putting the camera everywhere. But just mm-hmm. the sensuality has easily one of the sexiest one take sex scenes ever committed to film. 100%. And the use of hands. You know, the, the thing that um, Lana has talked about, I think she did a screening of it a couple of years ago, and she was talking about how there's so many cries for help from the from the, the former brothers, now sisters, um, where they were saying, like, look, Corky is in a closet in the beginning of the movie, the first shot, she's in the closet. All of the shots of hands, you know, which is very much, a, you know, a very, um, is very much like queer iconography for lesbianism is the use of hands and there's so many hand shots in it i like i'm, I'm glad you mentioned it because i was like bummed I, I i looked at my list and went oh fuck i don't have any room for bound there's always room for bound and i'm glad you put it on there <laughs> it's always tough when you have to narrow it down the thing that i remember about this you mentioned all kinds of iconic shots but the ones that i remember deal with the white paint and the the oh yeah blood droplets the blood. on the white paint and the gun skittering through there um, you got some amazing female characters in here and the imagery, like you mentioned with the hands, there is some horny imagery in here. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you remember the scene of the pipe being fixed. Oh, of course. You get straight 10 seconds of, of, of just all the slow-mo stuff. Like it is easily one of the most erotic films. Like, you know, another movie that almost made my list, um, that's like around the same time was, uh, John Dahl's The Last Seduction. And oh, yeah. between... The Last Seduction, which is a very female forward, um, you know, female, well, maybe antagonist, but very much female mean character in an erotic thriller. Because usually the female character is usually relegated to the femme fatale. And right. between Bound and Last Seduction, here were two subversions of that uh, that gimmick or that, that kind of genre norm. And again, those were very much influencing suitable flesh because again we were taking the same archetypes you usually see these characters in this form and there's usually the hapless protagonist that goes on this wild ride emotionally and, and physically and there's usually a femme fatale and i'm like well what if there was a, a you know a home fatale in our movie and the you know the lead the hapless protagonist was female instead of being the femme fatale i don't think we would have been able to sell these ideas to the financiers and everybody if I didn't have Bound in my lookbook. Because every time we had it, they'd go, oh, I love Bound. I'm like, that's it. That's what we're going for. We're going for that. We're going for you know a new neo-noir style. We're going for erotic thrillers, but we're going to try to do it with a, you know, a lot, a lot, uh, a lot less money than you would for this movie, but we're, we're putting the, you know, the women protagonists right up front and center. And that was a huge help. Dude, it, it worked. Going back to Bound for a second, great score too yeah. by Don Davis, uh, who would do the Matrix films. Oh, God, so good. I used to have that on, on, uh, on my son's CD. Cutting in here real quick to talk about today's sponsor, The Glitter Factory in Pawnee, Indiana. For people who have taste. For people who have style. For people who want it all. Where every woman is beautiful, unique, and seductive. Except Denise. She's definitely not those things. Come for the dancers, stay for the all-day breakfast buffet, and let them know that the Force 5 podcast sent you for 20% off of your first private dance. The Glitter Factory, located in Pawnee, Indiana, Route 231, behind the Paunchburger, where everyone is a VIP. 
Now that was, of course, a fake ad, but I do have an actual sponsor this week. Again, Haya Health. Haya is a vitamin company made for kids, getting them essential super nutrients they need to be their best. I have a five-year-old, he's a very picky eater, so we use Haya to supplement what he isn't getting, but they have probiotic and nighttime packages as well. They're delivered straight to your door. No sugars, no dyes, no gummy additives. Head to HayaHealth.com and use my code in the show notes to receive 20% off of your first order. And I should stress, this is a real ad. So if you got kids, give these a look, get some money off by using my link in the show notes. All right, back to Joe Lynch and top five erotic thrillers. Um, Okay, so uh, my next one. So I'm going into my... um Body double header, so to speak. My, the next right. two are um, are very much in the body realm, so to speak. Uh, the next one for me is uh, 1984's Brian De Palma directed Body Double. He thought he was watching her, but she was watching him. He thought he was trespassing, but he was invited. He knew he had gone too far. He couldn't stop. De Palma was, you know, if there were maybe three directors that I would say were highly influential, aside from Stuart Gordon, um, in Suitable Flesh, uh, would be Cronenberg and Verhoeven but definitely De Palma. Um, De Palma is one of those directors that, again, I'm, I wish I can go back to our the original part of our interview and say, what? Of course, De Palma. <laughs> I, yeah. I'm like pissed because he, he, again, he was one of those directors that loved to use the camera in a very subjective sort of way. You know, if it wasn't for De Palma, I wouldn't have, I mean, I'm sure I would have gotten to it at some point, but I wouldn't have been so interested in Hitchcock and what Hitchcock was doing with, you know, with his camera, like in Rear Window. Incredibly sexy movie, and that's partially due to where he's placing the camera and how he's shooting. De Palma takes that to a fetishistic standpoint, if you will. And um, yeah, like if if you've ever wanted to see what Brian De Palma's original intent was, he said in interviews that he wanted to make a porno, essentially, after Dress to Kill, and he had pivoted into a, a more of a provocateur stance after the success of you know, Carrie and then doing the entity, uh, sorry, the fury. Um, he did this, uh, experimental film home movies, but then when he hit, hit pay dirt, if you will, with dress to kill, he wanted to push it even further. So the original intention for body double was going to be the sexiest X rated film ever made, you know, by a studio didn't quite get to, you know, those, those heights or lows depending, but, um, in terms of like eighties sleaze core, and really using sexuality in a way that propels both plot and character um, and is just beautifully made for a movie that's essentially the most elevated Skinamax movie. Because if you take that plot, you could put Shannon Tweed right in there and have Andrew Stevens direct it. And you'd be like, oh, it's, it's all right there, but you give it to De Palma. And when you have someone that like knows and loves B movies, and wants to put an A movie sheen on it, you cannot go further. And and you will never see the song Frankie Goes to Hollywood um, relax the same way again. I think, if anything, it's one of the first movies that really employed the music video aesthetic um, You know that, that was obviously kind of co-opted and then taken forward with MTV. But I'd never seen anything like that before. 
Um, and, and there are, I mean, Melanie Griffith is so hot. Some of the stuff that she talks about, like her rules, I had never heard an actor say those things in a movie before. Um, so I was like, whoa, I like, I didn't even know what water sports were until that movie, but now <laughs> I do. Thank God. But yeah. I would, I would highly recommend Brian De Palma's body double. Melanie Griffiths isn't somebody that I I normally am drawn to, but in that movie, man, she puts off a whole different vibe that really gets me. Between that movie and one of my favorite films of all time that's in my, like, it's my top four uh, favorites in Letterboxd is Jonathan Demme's uh, Something Wild. That mm-hmm. movie, uh, that's another movie that, that changed my life because I had never seen a movie other than maybe years later seeing Audition that felt like it was one movie at first and then someone flipped this, you know, flipped the channel and we go from this kind of quirkier, sexier, pretty woman to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, like a whole different movie, but Melanie Griffith is so sexy in that movie. And, you know, between that movie and then body double, like, Oh God, it makes you erase all of the ideas that when you saw um, like roar, I don't know if you ever saw roar when she was a little kid. Oh yeah. And she was getting attacked yeah. by tigers and <laughs> roar. It's like, man, she definitely grew up at that point. Yeah, no kidding. Um, well, hey, that's another great segue. This show's not normally great at segues, but uh, it's a good segue to my number two because there's an actress in this movie that I never really noticed until this movie. By the way, we haven't had any crossover yet, so I'm, I'm wondering if we're going to have any crossover at all. We'll see. We'll see. No, I had to get an Adrian Lyon film on here because in terms of directors, he's mm-hmm. one of the kings, if yep. not the king. But I'm not going to go with the one that I think most people would choose as their number two or number one. I'm going to go with my favorite of his, which is 2002's Unfaithful. You okay? I went down like an old lady. I really hurt my knee. Come on up and get it off, no? Come on. Anyone we can sue? There was this nice guy that helped me, though. Is he good looking? Let's send him a bottle of wine. Cheap wine. Before you go, take your book. A souvenir. Be happy for this moment. This moment, this moment is, your life. is your life. I just wanted to call you and thank you, and I wanted to send you a bottle of... Come and see me. I'll make you some coffee. Here I am again. Want to dance? Now? Your eyes are amazing, you know that? You should never shut them, not even at night. I think this is a mistake. There's no such thing as a mistake. There's what you do and what you don't do. Ooh, with Richard Gere. Yeah, Diane yeah. Lane, Richard Gere, Olivia Martinez. Um, Diane Lane plays Connie. She's just this, um, she's a woman in a pretty good marriage, and she has an eight-year-old son, and she's going to uh, Soho to go shopping one day, and she runs in, literally runs into this guy, Paul. He's this hot, young bookstore owner. And she just can't get this guy out of her head. So she starts going into Soho more often, making trips just to shop, making trips eventually just to see him. And it turns into a full-blown affair. And Richard Gere's at home kind of thinking something's off. And he gets a tip from a coworker that says, hey, you need to look at your own family about loyalty. And so he sticks a private investigator on her. And um, man, it just comes to an amazing climax. Like you said, you'll never look at Oreos the same way with the RoboDoc thing. I always look at snow globes in a different way after this movie. Oh, yeah. You know, I'd seen plenty of Diane Lane by this point. Judge Dredd, Murder at 1600, 
I think she was in the perfect storm, which I would have seen. Did you ever then. see when she was doing, did you ever see the stuff that she was doing when she was a kid, like the fabulous stains? No, I, I remember her in streets of fire. Oh dude. Okay. Write this down. Well, streets of fire, but the movie she did before streets of fire, I believe, I think it was right before was a movie called ladies and gentlemen's ladies and gentlemen, the fabulous stains. And it's a, it's a, it's a, punk rock girl girl group movie that is i mean very frank if you will um uh, who else is in it uh hold on from wild at heart uh oh god no it's uh, laura dern laura dern one of her first movies she's in that as well okay and diane lane is in it and she it's kind of like the musical version of the legend of billy jean a little bit you know in terms of like that kind of you know fair is fair kind of thing but yeah it, it is unbelievable so between that and um and streets of fire like i had a huge and even outsiders i had a huge crush on diane lane for years it wasn't until unfaithful that i i had a slightly newer (laughs) different kind of crush of her (laughs) but you know i i loved how i think that the coup of that movie is the fact that you took kind of the archetype for sexual masculinity in Richard Gere yeah. and made him, you know, ostensibly the kind of frumpy antagonist in a way. I thought like, I don't know if you listen to Karina Longworth. She's got a, a podcast called You Must Remember This. Yeah, I love her. And she just did a whole sec. She did a whole series on erotic 90s. She also did the 80s too, which is really good because, you know, you start out hearing about him in An Officer and a Gentleman. And then we segue into Pretty Woman. And then, you know, he kind of coasted on his sexual prowess, if you will, we don't talk about gerbils, but you know the sexual, <laughs> the sexuality that he had, the power that he had as an archetype, very much the way that you know women did as well, you know, throughout cinema history. But he, as as an alpha male sexual being, he was the guy, and the way that line uses him, I thought was a masterstroke. I mean, Martinez is sexy as hell, and Diane Lane is amazing in it. I think that the um, the secret weapon of that movie is Richard Gere playing the bad guy, so to speak. I thought that was brilliant. Hundred percent agree. I wrote down uh, American Gigolo and Breathless, or you know, you you look at those movies and then you come to his role in Unfaithful, and it's just a great piece of casting. It's almost stunt casting in a way because you're right. Like when you yeah. look at, um, I don't know if you ever saw the movie um, Looking for uh, Mister Goodbar, which is uh, a Diane yeah. Keaton movie that. Can- I just saw that. That was my discoveries of the year last year. He's fucking terrifying in that one. And Richard Gere in that movie is one minute. He is a sexual, like, like Adonis. And then the next moment he's a sexual predator and he's fucking terrifying in that movie. So his, his range, I think he's gotten the short shrift, you know, lately because there's only so much, it feels like he could do, but he's maybe been typecast a little bit, but like his his use in Unfaithful was absolutely brilliant. Okay, so uh, along the same lines, if we're going to talk about you know steamy thrillers, um, and we were going back to the eighties a little bit, um, I want to bring up uh, Lawrence Kasdan's Body Heat, uh, starring William Hurt and Kathleen Turner. Kathleen Turner explaining her body chemistry. My temperature runs a couple of degrees high, around hundred. William Hurt receiving her body language. 
Maybe you shouldn't dress like that. I don't know what you're talking about. You shouldn't wear that body. Together, they're conspiring. I'm a married woman. Evan Walker. Nice to meet you. To fill one body bag. Because we're going to kill him. Watch two sizzling stars in the kind of movie you thought Hollywood forgot how to make. Body Heat. Monday night at 7. This is one of the sweatiest movies of all time. Oh, yeah. Uh, you, you know, like sweatier than any Fast and Furious movie. Uh, sweatier than, you know, any given Sunday uh, in terms of just sheer volumes of liquid coming off <laughs> of bodies. It, it, what, what's funny, though, is when you watch that movie and you know that they're actually freezing. Like when, like if you listen to the commentary, Lawrence Kasdan. So this is as homagey a film noir as you can get that Lawrence Kasdan at the time cashed in his chips for doing uh, the screenwriting on Empire Strikes Back and Raiders of the Lost Ark. And here it is. He goes in. He go, he comes in hot, so to speak, with this twisty, turny, su- southern kind of set film noir starring William Hurt and Kathleen Turner. And it is. Um, Really, the sexiest Dave ever looked. Um, there are sex scenes in it that are absolutely spectacular, and they show you nothing, um, or at least they are alluded to in the best ways possible. There is a you know kind of from behind scene that I've never seen shot that way before, and never have again. And I think like Lawrence Kasdan knew, like was a born filmmaker. He was just biding his time to be able to make a movie like this, you know, and he's gone on to do like the big chill and, um, and grand Canyon and other movies, but I still think this is his best movie. I think, um, you know, that there's a steaminess to this that really kicked off the erotic thriller genre, so to speak, even, you know, Karina talks about it on our podcast as well, where, you know, you wouldn't have guys like Adrian Lyon and Tony Scott shooting movies the way that they could in a commercial sensibility, without a movie like this being the biggest, the big, as big a hit as it was. And it was critically and commercially a huge hit. And to think that there were adults, you know, there was a time where people would be going to the movies to go see adult films, you know, and, and even porn. Uh, and that kind of subsided a little bit, but body heat kind of brought the heat back. And, um, and again, like come for, the steamy hot sex that you know that you're being promised by the box, by the poster, by the marketing. Stay for an absolutely fantastic film noir. That will truly keep you. If you don't know anything, that's why I don't want to really talk about the movie much. Go in as cold as possible because you will get hot by the end. <laughs> and, but you, what, what you end up with is a really fantastic film noir mystery that um, that stayed with me well past the first time that I saw it. And I hadn't seen it for years. And, to go back to it to watch um, to watch it for suitable flesh, I was like so happy that I forgot where things ended up because it was it's a hell of a, it's a hell of a wild ride. I'm glad that you put Body Heat on here. It's one of my honorable mentions. I think there's three major like anybody who's never seen an erotic thriller, there's three that they should see, and Body mm-hmm. Heat is on those that list of three for me for sure. Easily, yep. Um, I'm I'm glad I'm glad it's good that our alternates end up being crossovers so far. Yeah. You know? So I'm, I'm very curious what your number one is going to be though, because like it might be my number one too. Who knows? Well, we'll see. Um, I haven't talked about this one on the show before, and I was wondering what list it was going to come up on first. It was either going to be top five erotic thrillers or it was going to be top five San Francisco films. Oh, then, then here's our crossover. 
Basic Instinct from 1992. We mentioned Paul Verhoeven. Is she a suspect? She's a suspect. You like playing games, don't you? Games are fun. Beyond passion. She was the last person seen with the guy. I didn't kill him. Beyond pleasure. You're in over your head. I like it. Stay away from her. Freeze! Lies an even deadlier instinct. Come on! You are out of control, Kern. You'll just fall in love with me. I'm in love with you already, but I'll nail you anyway. Basic Instinct, rated R, starts Friday, March 20th at a theater near you. If you are remotely interested in erotic thrillers, this one is um, probably the sleaziest, and I think it's the most fun. Then there's Body Heat, which you said is true, it's the sweatiest. And then Fatal Attraction, I think, is the one that that is the classiest, I would say. But you know what? I had to get a, a Joe Esterhaus film on my list. He's the king of Penningham. And man, he was paid three million bucks for the screenplay. That's how hot he was at the time. Those, those were the days, my friend. Those were the days where you can write an idea on a napkin and pass it over to a big time producer and they'll go, <laughs> the check's in the mail. You got this. No, I, I'm glad that we both agree with this one because this was definitely one, too, that um, was at the top of the list for erotic thrillers that we were selling the idea of a twisty, turny, almost mystery-based um, genre film that could you know, entice a, a more commercial audience. Because yeah. not, not that people forget, but Basic Instinct, when it came out, was fraught with controversy. Um, when, they, uh, when the movie came out, they were picketing uh, the film based on, you know, Glad was picketing the film because they felt like the um, representation of, uh, of of gay life and gay sex was uh, was not, you know, uh, acceptable. When you watch the movie, I don't think that that's an issue. But at the time, they were very nervous about it. And then when it came out, it was a juggernaut. It was a true blockbuster. Like it came out in February, and everybody went to go see it. Everybody, grandmothers were going to see this movie. Everybody was talking about it. Yeah. And, you know, I got to admit, like, I was a little nervous going back to this because, again, I'm a huge Verhoeven, a, a huge Verhoeven fan. Like, but you can look at, you know, Flesh and flesh and Blood or uh, The Fourth Man. But, you know, no one talks about his movie Spetters, an early movie that he had done. Turkish Delight, also very, very sexy movie. But Spetters was one of those films that I had never seen sex depicted like this before. Um, almost very casually, very not like very matter of fact. And I, I really appreciated that he sees sex in so many different ways, but he knew you have Michael Douglas and Sharon Stone. You have to sell that and sell the sexuality and make it part of the story and the character. And, you know, when the first movie, when the movie first came out, you know, the theatrical version, very steamy. When you see the x-rated version which is really the only version that you can get today which i'm very happy about um you get to see you know the fact that you know the mpa was skittish about um you know cunnilingus that you couldn't see a man go down on a woman you know barely see a woman go down on a man but more importantly you know men going down on women is ta- is too much for general audiences give me a fucking break you know but these were the things that we wanted to push in suitable flesh like you know there's a very copious you know, um, uh, oral sex scene between a man and a woman in suitable flesh that was deliberately there because I was like, here, Paul, let me grab, you know, grab the, the cunnilingus baton and run with it here. <laughs> um, but, but again, you know, as much as, and I, and I, I have read the script, the original script for basic instinct. And I think that whatever changes that they were doing through production definitely helped 
because um, I mean, Esther House did a, a very solid job at, at the foundation, but I think that they really ran with it from there. But that movie is as sexy as it gets in terms of atmosphere, suspense, um, the way that the sex sexuality is shot. Um, you know, uh, one thing that, that filmmakers need to realize is that like you have to take a point of view with your camera, um, whether you want to go with the male gaze or the female gaze or try to mix it up a little bit with suitable flesh. We wanted to purely go with the female gaze. That's why there's way more men naked in suitable flesh than there are women, because this is Heather's character's recollection of the story. So she's not going to sexualize herself as much as she's going to fetishize the men. And I feel like Verhoeven, you know, is definitely firing on all cylinders in, in the provocation mode. But this was also at a time that the male gaze was the thing that was selling popcorn and that was putting people in seats. So that male gaze and, you know, kind of sexualizing Sharon Stone at every twist and turn was a, definitely a selling point, you know, to the point where they made a big controversy over the infamous uh, leg crossing scene. Yep. You know, that became part of the, the liner notes in the PR marketing, you know? So, but going back, watching that movie again, especially now that you can watch it like in glorious 4k, um, it's, it's one of the best looking movies. It's one of the, you know, that, that I, I, I'd seen in the genre, you know, it takes San Francisco in a way that I had not seen since vertigo, if you will. Um, yeah, it's, it's, I think in, in the pantheon of erotic thrillers, that one is a, that could be considered a true masterpiece. I agree. Sharon Stone as Catherine is just, this is another one I'd seen her in things before, but everybody started paying attention to Sharon Stone after this movie. She just owns every scene she's in. I remember seeing her, it was like King Solomon's Mines or something like that. There was an early like 80s like adventure movie that I'd seen her in. But then you saw her in Total Recall. Yeah. And that's another movie that she's incredibly sexy in that movie. And she's doing, you know, character twists and turns like all over the place. But yeah, it wasn't until you saw her for that first moment in, in Basic Instinct. And I'm not even talking about the, the sex scene in the beginning. Also, movie boasts spectacular gore from Rob Bottin. That was when oh, yeah. Rob was starting to get out of the business a little bit, but he was like still, you know, kind of helping out filmmakers that he had helped out before, like, you know, Paul with Robocop. So great gore. But even from that first sex scene, you don't know it's her or not. And, I, you know, for all intents and purposes, it is definitely her. No spoilers. Um, but the moment that she's introduced, the you can just feel the like Hollywood and the in, entire audience around the world both fell in love and fell in fear with Sharon Stone a little bit. And then Jen, and, and obviously she had an amazing run, but would not be without basic instinct. And, and taming Michael Douglas as well, who at the time was coming off of wall street and black rain. And mm -hmm. he was kind of like this Hollywood bad boy and her taming him right off the bat was another great piece of casting genius. One last thing about that movie. You mentioned that it was a smash. This thing made $358 million worldwide, which if you adjusted it for today, $783 million. That's how big it's as, it was. It was as big as a fucking Marvel movie, man. Like that's, I, Incredible. I, think, I look at that movie and go, I wish, I mean, this, this was at a time though, that, you know, you, you know, things have changed in terms of eroticism in, you know, in movies at, with the advent of, you know, home video, obviously, you know, everyone couldn't wait for this movie to come out on home video, trust me. But, you know, the internet, you know, the internet changed people's um, distribution of eroticism. You know, it gone, you know, people would go see. I had two dates that I went on, you know, when Basic Instinct came out. The first one did not go so well. The second one went much better. <laughs> um, 
but like that was that's how we you know watched sex in movies you know was either going to the theater and then kind of taking it back home or going home and watching it on skinamax or on vhs and taking it from there that has all changed and i think that was one of the things you know aside from you know the way that the culture has shifted uh in the last couple of years that that's why we haven't really had sexuality as prevalent in uh in movies the way that we did back then now i think things are changing you know between just looking at like saltburn and poor things alone being so prestigious and having copious amounts of sex like i was thrilled that everyone was like jumping on this like hey horny cinema's back thanks to suitable flesh i'm like uh don't forget those those filmmakers over there you know are going to all the award shows and there they have full frontal male nudity and lots of fucking you know so i think that uh, audiences are starting to uh, accept sexuality in films again you know that they don't have to just go on red tube and type in a couple keywords and go okay i'm done that they're appreciating that as long as it's done respectfully and also obviously you know with full consent of the filmmakers and the the cast involved as long as all those those boxes are checked i think there's going to be a renaissance for erotic films in general possibly erotic thrillers in the years to come well, I really hope so. And if you want to get ready for that renaissance, we've got nine amazing films that we talked about here. We only crossed over once. Fantastic list for you, Mr. Lynch. Yes, thank you. Let's go ahead and recap our list real quick for the listeners, and I will go first. At number five, I had Scorned from 1993. At four, I had The Devil's Honey, Italian film from 1986. At number three, I had Bound from the Wachowskis. That was 96. At number two, I had Unfaithful, 2002. And number one, Basic Instinct from 1992. All right. And then, so mine uh, would be starting off with 1986's From Beyond, Stuart Gordon's erotic cosmic horror from 1986. Uh, Then I went 10 years ahead and said Lost Highway, 1996's film from David Lynch. Uh, Then I hit up uh, Brian De Palma in 1984's Body Double. Then went back a couple of years to Lawrence Kasdan with another body film, this time Body Heat. And finally, The Mother of all erotic films that we that I know Jason and I can both agree with, and that would be 1992's Basic Instinct from Paul Verhoeven. Great list. Uh, any honorable mentions that you just wanted to shout out real quick? Yeah, I mean, like we were, let's see, like The Last Seduction, John Dahl's um, neo-noir that we talked about from 94, Body Chemistry, 1990 from Christine Pearson, uh, Alan Parker's Angel Heart. Not a lot of people oh, talk yeah. about that movie, um, but that has some of the sexiest sex scenes ever that's another very wet and sweaty movie with mickey rourke and lisa bonet and um yeah that one's a whoof and robert de niro is the devil can't yeah, go wrong de niro. um uh, dead ringers david cronenberg's dead ringers who that also narrowly escaped the uh, the list for me that was 19, uh, 1988 starring jeremy irons and jeremy irons um sea of love harold becker from 1989 uh 1992's barbie schroeder um uh, directed film called single white female um, mm-hmm. Double Indemnity from Billy Wilder, 1944. I mean, fuck, man, I can go on. A, 1999, Eyes Wide Shut, Stanley Kubrick. The movie's coming back hard. When it first came out, everybody hated it. Now everyone's watching it as their Christmas movie. Definitely see that. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, and then, yeah, you know what? And then there's one more that I think is a really, really sexy movie that not, that not a lot of people give enough uh, credit to. And that's Philip Noyce's Dead Calm from 1989, starring uh, Nicole Kidman, Sam Neill, and Billy, Crazy Billy Zane. That is, an, again, yeah. uh, very Hitchcockian in a way, but has some incredibly sexy scenes in it. Just the three of those on a boat together, just pure eroticism, just, just pouring off, off the sides. 
All right, Dead Calm. I haven't seen that one either, so I got that on my list. You got four uh, movies here that I got to watch. Body Chemistry, Ladies and Gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains, Spetters, which I haven't seen yet, and Dead Calm. Oh, man. Spetters, definitely check it out. There's a very hardcore, you know, sorry to get sensitive with content here, but there's a very hardcore rape scene at the end. But it's male-on-male rape scene, so I guess that's, you know, something different. Um, but there's ways that – and what's weird is that the movie is kind of just about a, a – BMX crew, which you'd go like, that does not sound like anything erotic at all. But the way that uh, Verhoeven shoots young adults in this, um, there's a scene where a couple had just had sex. And in one long take, um, the girl is kind of caressing the man's penis. And you see it all. like, But it's done in a way that is so innocent and yet really sexy at the same time. There's just something that Verhoeven just kind of comes to, pardon the, pardon the pun, he comes to sex in a way that uh, not all filmmakers are um, either aware of or want to go, but I'm very happy that he does that. So there, there's a couple uh, couple extras for you in there. Awesome. I got just a, a couple that weren't mentioned. The Poison Ivy series we didn't mention. That's a, a really fun series. Oh, I do love the Poison Ivy movies. Yep. Yeah, especially Poison Ivy 3 with uh, Jamie Presley. That's the one where they didn't use oh, body yeah. doubles for um, for the main actress. And then Cruel Intentions is a really, really fun... Uh, it's rated R. It doesn't have a great sex scene, but man, it, it is a sexy movie. That kiss, other than um, Rear Window, which I think has the, the sexiest kiss of all time in cinema, uh, there, there's a, a, a rivulet of spittle that yeah. goes in between the two girls when they make that kiss in central park, that is, Oh my God, just one of the sexiest things ever. And I'm sure it wasn't intended, but I'm so glad it's there. Yeah. Yeah. Love that. All right, Joe Lynch, let's get you out of here. But before we do, we got to talk about some plugs. So where can people watch suitable flesh? All right. Well, suitable flesh, which uh, had a really nice run on, uh, in theaters. It was on VOD. It still is on VOD. Uh, you can catch it there if you want to throw a couple bucks our way. Um, you can get the physical media version, which has uh, the Blu-ray and DVD. Uh, I didn't even know there was a DVD, and now I just found out there was, uh, thanks to Amazon. But that this is uh, littered with special features. I grew up in the special feature era, and I wanted to make sure that we had a lot of special features on it, uh, some of which I've done, I did myself, uh, so including a commentary track, a half an hour uh, behind-the-scenes making of, um, a piece on storyboards that I had done, uh, a, a conversation with Steve Moore, our composer, a blooper reel. We kind of threw it all in there, and hopefully you guys appreciate that. And it looks great on Blu-ray. Um, and then it's also now, for all you cheapy peepees out there, all, all you streaming fans who might not have a, the ability to you know, get it on Blu-ray, uh, Suitable Flesh is now streaming on Shudder as well. And for all you VHS fans out there, since most of these movies we had all seen at first on VHS, uh, suitable flesh will uh, will be on VHS in a pan and scan that um, that I supervised and approved myself that I worked oh, on myself I... to to really give it the the true four by three experience because um, we did think of that when we were shooting it as like I want to make sure that we're either shooting it you know for the pan and scan version or to make sure that we had shots that we would have to deliberately pan and scan so there will be a um, a VHS version of the movie from Whittier and Broken Fan coming out in the spring as well. Nice, nice. Uh, links to everything will be in the show notes. Go check that film out. It's it's incredible. I didn't mention it before, but the uh, backup cam scene, like just oh, chef's kiss. Cool. Love that scene. That was so good. That was a kill that I've had in my back pocket for 
decades at this point. So like the fact that I was able to finally do it and no one had done it before, I was so happy. And anytime that I'm in a theater and watch that, man, just the best is hearing from people afterwards going home and going, I can't look at my backup camera the same way again. To me, <laughs> job well done. Yeah, job well done. Awesome. Joe, thanks so much for coming on. Um, this is a blast and really an honor for me. I'm a, I'm a huge fan. Thank you so much, Jason. Sorry it took so long, but I'm glad we got there. Before you skip over to Shudder to watch Suitable Flesh, please rate and review this show on your favorite podcast platform. Getting the word out about Force 5 is the only way that this show grows. Intro and outro bumpers come courtesy of Nate Spears, and the Top 5 List bumper was produced by me with music from Audio Binger. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, and go watch Suitable Flesh and some of the other erotic thrillers Joe and I recommended.